Thank you all again. Uh, our final panel of the day, uh, which will be followed by Representative Sensenbrenner, uh, is on the topic of proposed reform. We've heard a lot about uh, the law and technology and uh, facts of the growing architecture of surveillance uh, that has been constructed uh, over the past decade. Uh, so the question then is, is there anything to do about it beyond uh, using Tor and Spider Oak? Um, and so we're going to take a look at uh, the growing body of uh, reform legislation that has been proposed. Uh, so again, you have the full bios, but we have uh, my colleague, uh, John Mueller, who's also a political scientist at uh, Ohio State University. Um, uh, Michelle, uh, Michelle Richardson, who is a, a, a legislative counsel of the American Civil Liberties Union. Kevin Bankston, who heads the uh, Free Speech Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology, uh, and helped orchestrate a campaign to, uh, uh, to gather tech companies to demand greater transparency, uh, to be able to disclose things like the raw number of surveillance orders they were receiving. Uh, and Bruce Schneier, who I think is officially listed as um, a, a fellow with the Berkman Center, but is, is better known, I think, as security guru Bruce Schneier. Uh, so we'll begin with, uh, with my colleague, John Mueller. To get that clear. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm going to take a somewhat different tack than many of the people have, uh, have uh, done so far and talk about the effectiveness, quite apart from the legality and so forth, of the surveillance programs. Um, as you might, as, as you may have, uh, if you were here for when uh, Senator Wyden, Wyden talked this morning, he said he was able to get an NSA uh, program closed down by being able to demonstrate it didn't do any good. Um, the NSA was kicking and screaming the whole time, but they were ultimately successful. Uh, the key issues basically are two that are proposed by the president. One is he admits that the encroachments on secrecy, though he calls them modest, nevertheless exist. And in other words, these surveillance programs are not cost-free. Um, but he says, nevertheless, on net, it's worth us doing. And I'd like to explore those propositions. Um, going back to 9-11, uh, the impetus came out of ideas like this, Rudy Giuliani saying things like, uh, everybody, all the security experts, every single one, including himself, thought there'd be many more 9-11s. Uh, it was also the case that you know, within the intelligence community, according to Jane Mayer, everybody thought there would be lots more 9-11s immediately after 9-11. Uh, that seems to be basically preposterous because it's obviously perfectly possible, even with the information they had that, at that time, to argue that um, it was not uh, that it could have been, it could well have been an aberration. You couldn't prove it one way or the other, but as an intelligence officer, you can't take that off the table because you can't disprove it. Um, and similarly, um, the uh, uh, at the time, the intelligence officers were running around the country and deciding there were between two and five thousand Al Qaeda operatives trained in overseas in in in, in, in the United States. The correct number, as it came out to be, was zero, uh, very close to it. Nonetheless, that sort of perception that there's a whole bunch of people out there that we can't find, but they do really exist and they're really bad, uh, still, still basically informs the programs, I think. Um, the um, uh, Robert Mueller in 2005 uh, saying that I remain very concerned about what we're not seeing. At that very same time, the, uh, the uh, FBI had done a secret report in which they said that we haven't been able to find a single Al-Qaeda sleeper cell. Fox News asked the FBI guy about it, and he said, well, just because we haven't found any concrete of sleeper cells now doesn't mean they don't exist. Uh, and so what we've been doing is looking for these people that don't seem to exist. There is within the FBI a thing called a threat matrix um, in which uh, every day there are 5,000 threats on this threat matrix that they're looking through. Um, and these are basically not really threats, they're leads. 
Over the course of the period since 9-11, the FBI and other government agencies have traced down, by my calculation, about 10 million leads, uh, virtually none of which have led to much of anything. Uh, this is a uh, item from the, the only item I know of that's been publicized uh, from the threat matrix, which says um, there, we've had a threat from the Philippines to attack the United States unless blackmail money is paid. Uh, if you ask them, where'd you get that? It's from a single email which said this. Dear America, I will attack you if you don't pay me nine 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 dollars Moo ha ha ha. They had to trace that down. They found it was from the Philippines, and they had the Philippine police go and talk to the would-be extortionist parents. Um, he, <laughs> he hasn't been heard from since. Um, but uh, the threat matrix basically has this impact. What you're doing in the, the government basically is, is a functional equivalent of barricading yourself in the, your apartment and only turning on the radio and listening to police calls and trying to imagine what it's out like that. Uh, this is what Jack Goldsmith said. Uh, it's uh, hard to overstate the impact, the incessant ways of threat reports on, on the judgment of the people inside the government. Um, that um, the want of actionable intelligence combined uh, with the knowledge of what might happen causes an aggressive pack, panicked attitude. One possibility is that we don't have any actionable intelligence means there's nothing out there to be, have actionable, actionable intelligence about. That hypothesis does not seem to percolate to the top at any time. Um, the, um, uh, and this is George Tennant saying, if you could sit where I sat and see what passed by my uh, by day, day, you'd be scared to death. You'd drive yourself crazy believing all or even half of what was in the threat matrix. Well, if the, if the threat matrix apparently about one out of every 10,000 leads leads to anything. So if you believe half of it, you're believing a fantastic amount of stuff. Um, uh, everyone forgets the one central precept that we, concept that we lived through, the palpable fear that we felt was the basis of the fact that there was so much we did not know. Because we we're afraid of the things we don't know. There must be something we still haven't found. Um, okay, uh, General Keith Alexander, uh, in recent testimony, for, uh, before extremely tendentiously titled uh, House Hearings, uh, start out by saying, if it weren't for me, we'd have another 9-11. And then he talks about how we were working hand in glove with the FBI and the CIA. Uh, there's a fair amount of information about what NSA has done for the CIA and the FBI. Uh, let's take the FBI first. Um, the, um, the, uh, the FBI frequently refers to what it's going after, t um, 10 million leads, as ghost chasing. They good to get tons of information from the NSA, telephone numbers to check out, and they literally call these Pizza Hut leads because when you follow them up, what you end up doing is finding somebody who called a Pizza Hut. Um, you, and uh, Robert Mueller has said specifically, according to uh, Graf's book, um, to Alexander, you act like this is some treasure trove. It's a useless time suck. And other members of the FBI have, have talked about it in more colorful terms. Um, the, um, uh, there's also the question about what's happened to the CIA. Uh, the CIA constantly is getting things uh, which are, they call bags, B-A-Gs. Uh, and what that stands for is big-ass graphs. Um, these come from the, they come from the uh, NSA, uh, and they're characterized by a huge number of nodes. You actually saw a big-ass graph put forward just a few minutes ago by Paul Rosenzweig, but that was really simple compared to what they get. Uh, they include all these layers of connections and so forth, um, and um, the uh, number of nodes can be a number in the millions, and most importantly, there are very few useful leads. So let me uh, conclude by talking about uh, what have the programs accomplished? Uh, what's the evidence on this? I was very interested in, in, um, in Senator uh, uh, Wyden's uh, comment 
that they've looked at the 45, 55 cases and found virtually none that have hold much water. I'll just talk about the four that have been, uh, that have been uh, confirmed, uh, have been talked about. Um, they, there's, there's the two programs, the phone metadata program and the 207 uh, program, which is overseas. I'll mostly be talking about the 215 program. What has it done? Uh, it's, not, it not, it's not important whether it's been helpful or contributing. The issue is, has it ever been critical or necessary? Because it does obviously is an invasion of privacy, as even the president admits. admits. Um, they sent uh, the classified list of 54 cases. When that came out, I was really surprised in some respects, because you'd think that if this val data were so valuable, every single investigation would uh, go, automatically go to the uh, uh, NSA and say, please check this out. Uh, and as far as I can see, I've done a case study of every case in which in the United States, which has uh, tried to do terrorist damage within the United States and NSA never comes up. And I think the reason for that are two. One is um, the uh, well, the, ma the main reason for that, I think, um, is that NSA, if it was queried, uh, would basically come up with so many different leads that it have to follow up that would lead nowhere that it would screw up the investigation. That's my suspicion. Anyway, of these, only 13 have anything to do with the United States, Homeland Nexus, as Alexander calls it. Uh, over 90% are 702, in other words, involving things overseas, not domestic, which would be the uh, 215 program. Uh, they've only discussed four in public, and Alexander says we can't talk, talk more about it because we don't want to give away our hyper methods. Now, it's possible the four, the four cases they've talked about uh, are, are, are the hardest ones, but I suspect they're the easiest ones to try to get some uh, uh, um, traction on, and all four are basically pretty feeble. Uh, one of these is the uh, case of uh, a, a guy named Headley who was trying to kill a cartoonist in Denmark. Uh, they already had plenty of information about him, uh, uh, and they, uh, from a tip from the British, they, uh, uh, though the Americans had overlooked him with his, with his previous shenanigans, um, and they could have easily gotten a court order if they needed it to follow him up. Um, the 702 may have helped with some, some of the plea bargaining issues, but as soon as Headley was, was caught, he just simply talked and talked and talked and talked, uh, trying, to, trying to talk his way out of it. So they had plenty of information. They may not need any, any more. A second uh, case is a San Diego cab driver. In this case, 215 may have been important. His whole crime was sending $8,500 to Somalia to be fed into a war uh, which had been going on for 25 years. $8,500 even in Somalia won't buy you very much in a war. Um, the, um, there's also the Zazi case in which there was a guy who went to Afghanistan, then came back um, and tried to build a bomb. Um, he had been trained in Afghanistan by Al-Qaeda, uh, but he forgot how to do it, so he kept having to call, or rather to email, a, 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 a um, uh, uh, email address that was already known to the government because of a tip from the British uh, police. They were watching it, and when he started calling them, they, they, uh, they uh, uh, followed up on that. So they didn't need a data bank to do that at all. Uh, each, he, as he's trying to build a bomb, he, each, each call, according to court records, became more desperate than the last because he couldn't figure out how to make the bomb, even though he'd been trained to do it. And finally, there's some really good reporting coming out of Kansas City Star by a guy named, um, uh, by, uh, uh, a guy named Mark Morris. Um, and it has to do with a case that only came up very recently uh, in the discussions, uh, 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 these uh, court testimony in, in June. Um, it involves uh, supposedly the bombing of the, night of, of the, uh, of the uh, New York Stock Exchange. Uh, what this basically was, there are three guys in the United States, one in Kansas City, and two in, um, and two in um, uh, New York, 
who, after the invasion of Iraq, wanted to go fight in Iraq or Afghanistan or Somalia. Uh, they couldn't figure out how to do it, however. So a few years, five years later, they finally got in connection with somebody in Yemen, two guys in Yemen, who said, we're jihadists, we can help you get over into the fight. All you have to do is send us money. It turns out, according to Morris's discussion, that it was all basically a scam. These two guys are trying to bilk these three Americans out of money. Uh, and over a period of time, what they did was they sent uh, $23,000 worth of uh, money, plus watches, cold weather gear, Garmin GPSs, and a remote-controlled toy car. Um, I've emailed Morris about the toy car, and he said, yep, it's a toy car. Um, and uh, the idea was that this stuff would be held for them in Yemen, and then when they came over, they would use it to get their training so they could go to the fight. Uh, but uh, the, what the scam artists were doing was a dividing among themselves. There's no record about which guy got the toy car, uh, and they, sp they spread the money on various places. They're also trying to get some more money uh, because one of the guys wanted to open a, an appliance store and needed $45,000. So he's going to try to get that out of these guys. But they started saying, well, we want to come over there and fight. So they said, basically, well, what you really want to do is some terrorism in the United States. So why don't you stake out the New York Stock Exchange to one of the three guys who was in New York? He eventually did. He walked around it. And then several months later, sent them a one-page uh, description with, with information that could be uh, gotten from Google Maps. Um, so that's the, that's the extent of the threat. Whether there are other 40, the other 50 cases have anything, or the other 51 cases have anything more in them is extremely questionable, it seems to me. So let me conclude on that. Thank you. Wow, well, that was so entertaining. I don't know how I'm <laughs> going to follow up on that. But um, thank you for having me. And we're very excited to actually talk about reform here. And while the ACLU has been working on limiting the reach of the Patriot Act and the FISA Amendments Act for over a decade now, we see a very unique moment here. After the leaks over the summer, um, there's renewed interest here, and it is more bipartisan than ever, and the outrage is deeper than ever. Now, there's always been a loyal opposition to these sorts of spying powers. Even back when the original Patriot Act passed, there were 66 members of the House and one senator who voted no. But things have changed now that we have black and white evidence that these programs are being turned on everyday Americans. It was always the ACLU and other people um, being hysterical, um, overreacting without any proof. But now we see court orders that say every American's phone records every day to the NSA for seven years. And this has galvanized people, it has the public outraged, and we see Congress more involved than they've been in a very, very long time. So how would you fix this problem? Um, first, I should just say generally, it has to be legislatively. It's pretty clear that the Obama administration has doubled down on this program and doesn't believe that it's doing anything wrong, um, that the program um, does not collect sensitive information, and the procedures in place after it's collected are sufficient. Um, we also see now that there are court opinions that have okayed the collection of both the content and the metadata. And so without legislation and Congress intervening, it's likely that these programs are going to continue indefinitely. Legislation. Now, the first thing it has to do is stop the bulk collection of the content and the metadata of Americans. Um, there's a lot of debate here about whether the collection of the information in the first place is the harm or later when the government uses it. But I think this is a perfect example how if everything has gone wrong over the last 12 years and once it's in government's hands, there's no way to assure that it's being used properly. 
Um, there's no accountability and there's no meaningful oversight. There are many ways you could do this. Probably the easiest way is to go into something like Section 215, maybe consider other parts of the Patriot Act, like national security letters, and say that you have to go back to the days where you're actually focused on a nexus to terrorism, that there is some connection to a terrorist or a spy, perhaps people in contact with them or their activities. You could also go into the FISA Amendments Act and scale it back. Um, Jamil and others spoke on the earlier panel about how it's really just a giant vacuum at this point. You could force them to better focus on individual targets, um, known people, maybe not with a probable cause warrant, but the idea that you're actually going after guys who you suspect have done something wrong. Um, you also want to see uh, ironclad restrictions on how this information is used once it's collected. Um, the law for decades has kicked that decision to the secret FISA court, and we've been told for years that if we ever saw these secret use limitations, we'd be okay, we would understand that there really isn't anything to worry about here. Um, this summer we've seen them for the first time. They've always been kept secret, and they're full of holes. Um, all presumptions lie in favor of the government. They're allowed to keep, retain, and use vast amounts of data for many different purposes, including criminal prosecutions. This has become a backdoor to the Fourth Amendment. And finally, we want to make sure that the legislation mandates transparency. Um, the lunch speaker, uh, Rep. Amash, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. The links that the intelligence committees have gone to prevent the greater Congress from understanding the extent of these programs, um, the way they bury information and are now actively trying to authorize these programs, um, coupled with how hard the court has struggled with understanding these programs and making meaningful decisions and then actually enforcing them. The only thing that has made a difference is dragging them out into the light so that there is some public accountability. So it's crucial that legislation require these court orders and court decisions that have significant interpretations of the law to be made public, and that there be a better description of how much data is being collected and what type of data it is. Um, I would say there are a couple of things reform is not. Reform is not just post hoc oversight. I think you're going to see a lot of proposals flourish from surveillance advocates that as long as a report goes to Congress after the fact or a secret FISA court gets a secret report about a secret program after the fact, that that is a check and balance enough. And it's not. Those sorts of checks are not a substitute from scoping these programs and making sure the government doesn't collect the information in the first place. Um, reform is not focusing on intentional misconduct. Um, you'll see the administration often try to point to the number of people who are searching their ex-girlfriend or ex-wife or intentionally going in, but that's not the question here. Um, that's going to happen, whether it's national security or health care or where the database is. The question is, what are the rules in the first place? And right now they allow the daily surveillance of everyday Americans, and that's what needs to be fixed. <laughs> Um, finally, um, there's been a lot of discussion about how to fix the FISA court itself and recognition that the process itself is not working. Um, while we do want to make sure that there's better court review um, of these programs, uh, we want to be clear that FISA court reform in and of itself 
is not enough. I think this is a type of answer that Congress likes. Uh, you appoint someone else to make the important decisions, right? You appoint some guy to go into a secret process before a secret court and file secret papers that maybe make their way to a secret congressional committee. Um, that sort of process is not likely to right this ship in and of itself. The court has been clear. It has established precedent. And um, that sort of court advocate without the underlying changes here to protect privacy and fix the statute, won't be able to accomplish what we need to do here. Um, so at the end of the day, we really urge Congress to take a broader view here. And um, I know Mr. Sinsenbrenner will talk about it later, and we're looking forward to working with Congress on this. Uh, <clears throat> thanks. Um, I want a plus one to everything Michelle said, which I've done many times in my career. Uh, probably should go on my resume. Uh, I'm glad I'm following Michelle because I think it bears repeating and then repeating again that I can count on my hands and maybe my toes uh, the number of people on the planet who have the capacity, expertise, uh, knowledge, and access and are in civil society fighting for our rights who can do what Michelle does. There are people like Michelle, there are folks like Greg Nojon at my organization, CDT, there are folks at Brennan Center, the Constitution Project. There's really only a handful of people who have the capacity to fight for these reforms. And that's what makes alliances so important. Uh, something that has been highlighted by my experience working on this transparency coalition, which is one of three uh, reform-related issues I'll be batting clean up on today. I'll be talking about transparency. Uh, I'll be talking about the importance of 702 FISA Amendments Act reform, especially upstream. And I'll be talking briefly about crypto as a lead into Bruce, who I'm sure will have a lot to say on that issue. Um, as soon as the PRISM reporting happened, um, and as, as uh, I think Barton and Spencer talked quite a bit about on the journalist panel, there was a great deal of confusion about what exactly the PRISM reporting meant what exactly direct access to the company's systems meant. And it caused a great deal of concern, especially amongst international customers of companies like Google and Facebook and others that were named in those PRISM slides about how safe their data was, uh, how often the NSA comes calling, and how those companies respond when the NSA does come calling, what they do and don't do uh, when the NSA makes these demands. Um, and it seemed that there was an opportunity because companies like Google, who had long been pushing for transparency around law enforcement requests and had recently negotiated a deal regarding uh, transparency around national security letters, uh, was suddenly being even more strident in its statements about the need for transparency. You saw companies like Microsoft and Facebook uh, issuing new reports and negotiating deals with the DOJ to at least give a bucket number of all the requests they get from the government, law enforcement and, and foreign intelligence surveillance. Uh, you saw Google and Microsoft making a motion to the FISA court to be able to publish a single number of all the FISA requests they receive. Um, this seemed like an opportunity for civil society and the companies to find common cause. And so CDT, um, you know, working on one of its core competencies, which is trying to build these consensus coalitions, set out in this summer to build what we now informally call the We Need to Know Coalition, a coalition of companies uh, and free speech and privacy organizations um, petitioning the administration and Congress for greater latitude to do comprehensive, basic transparency reporting about the number of uh, orders they receive under particular legal authorities, the number of users affected by those requests, breaking down those requests by whether they impact the content of communications or metadata or basic subscriber information, and then also asking the government to make similar uh, reporting numbers of its own. 
Um, and so we were able to pull together, based on the model of digital due process, our ECPA coalition, our uh, Electronic Communications Privacy Act Reform Coalition, uh, which took a few years to develop, we used that model to, over a month in the summer, including the July 4th holiday, pull together a coalition of nearly 100 organizations, including Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Yahoo, Twitter, Apple, um, who I would not typically characterize as a joiner, um, but Apple, uh, uh, and also a range of companies on the smaller end, startups, uh, investors, and civil society groups to make uh, more aggressive demands than any of these companies had before made individually, uh, and, and certainly not as a group. Um, within weeks of that letter, we saw the introduction, and David Lieber mentioned these, of bills in the House and the Senate, bipartisan bills from Zoe Lofgren and Al Franken, uh, accomplishing much of what we've asked for, and we're hoping uh, based on the, the inclusion of those uh, reforms in the widen Udall bill that we've seen floated, uh, that it's now going to be pretty much standard. If you see an omnibus surveillance reform bill, it's going to have this in it. Um, and I think that demonstrates the power of the ability of civil society and companies to align their interests where appropriate, just as similarly, we often can get results when we can align with the government against company overreach when, when they're doing bad things. Um, and so... Uh, I think this kind of reporting is important, first off, simply because of the First Amendment rights of the companies. These are prior restraints, and frankly, it's insane that David Lieber has to dance around the fact uh, of whether or not Google receives FISA requests when you have Patrick Hayden saying, hey, Gmail is the preferred email of terrorists, or you have General Alexander at a hearing two weeks ago uh, flat out saying, hey, the terrorists use Gmail and Twitter and Facebook. Um, one would expect that we can assume, based on that, that they are, in fact, going up on these companies. Um, and yet, Google itself still has to dance around the fact of whether they receive this process at all. And that's, that's nuts. Um, and we think that this type of reporting would not harm national security. We've had similar reporting for law enforcement from the government for decades and from the companies for many years. And no one has ever suggested that you know, Tony Soprano was tipped off. Um, meanwhile, if the concern is that we're going to drive terrorists uh, toward services that are not being surveilled. The fact is those services already can say if they are not receiving process. If you've never received Pfizer process or NSL process, uh, you're totally free to say, hey guys, I've never received Pfizer NSL process. <laughs> um, so uh, we have high hopes for this. We think that it, it should be a part of any package of reform. We don't think it's sufficient alone. We think substantive reform is necessary as well. And you know, just as I want to thank the companies for helping us on this issue, I want to invite them to take the next logical step and support us on substantive reform, which is, brings us to my second issue, and I'll do these very quickly. Um, the need for reform of Section 702, the FISA Amendments Act. We focused very much on 215, particularly because we have a very clear idea of what's going on. We're still pretty confused about PRISM, but the fact is we actually have a pretty good idea of what's been going on with the upstream. We've known it since December 24th of 2005, when the New York Times first reported it. We've known it since Mark Klein showed up at our doorstep at EFF with documents showing how the vacuum cleaner is wired uh, at AT&T's facility in San Francisco. Um, we had great reporting from uh, Shaban, um, uh, from Shaban and, um, I'm sorry, Charlie, uh, just a few weeks ago, right before the FISA court issued, uh, uh, show, uh, declassified an opinion uh, that made pretty clear what the upstream collection is. We've had the slides that reveal what the upstream collection is. We've had even Senator Feinstein admit uh, in an open hearing two weeks ago that the NSA is sitting on our internet backbone. She simply called it the internet background. Um, mistake, it happens. But um, the fact is, 
we've known for nigh on eight years that the NSA has listening stations on our domestic internet backbone, and yet the administration still simply will not admit it. It is, in fact, a state secret. Uh, and so we can't litigate whether it's legal. So we've weirdly gone from, no, you're crazy. Where's your evidence? That's not happening, to, well, we can't confirm or deny that, and it's a state secret, and you have to stop your litigation right now, to, wait, actually, we've been doing that for eight years. Where have you been? It's totally the status quo. What, you want to actually change that? No, that's just the way it is now. We never actually had a debate as a democracy where we, the people, and our policymakers spoke openly about the fact that the fiber optic network is being split into secret rooms around the country filled with heavy metal that is data mining on our communications as well as international and foreign communications. And so I think we need to start talking about 702 reform as well as, um, as, well as 215 reform. Um, the uh, reforms in Wyden's bill are a good step. They would require probable cause before searching these databases for US person information. But I think we need to try and put some more protections on the front end including narrowing the purposes uh, for which this information can be scanned by narrowing the definition of acceptable foreign intelligence information, um, and halting this practice of being able to scan non-targets communications for communications about a target, which, as Charlie Savage's story made clear, means that every international communication crossing the border is fundamentally being searched by a police robot, um, which you know, we tend to think implicates the Fourth Amendment rights of every person who communicates internationally. Uh, third and finally, crypto. I think I've taken too much time, so I'm going to let Bruce talk about crypto. Which I wasn't planning on. Oh, then I'll take two minutes no. to talk about crypto. No, no, Not the way it works around here. Actually, I like going last because pretty much everything has been said and kind of reduces what I have to say. And uh, I will try to sort of sum up everything and, and look, at, look at the bigger picture. I mean, uh, to sum up the day, I mean, the NSA has turned the Internet into a giant surveillance platform. Right? That's what has happened. There are a lot of details we don't know. I actually think that's okay, because the details would mean we're chasing yesterday's problems. We actually need to solve today's problems and tomorrow's problems, where there aren't details yet. And this is very much an effect of computers and the internet. I mean, data is fundamentally a byproduct of computers and computer networks. All transactions produce data. And we're just arguing about what should happen to it. Maybe to where it should go. And there's very much a public-private surveillance partnership here, which I think is important. I mean, they were, we're talking a lot about the cracks you know, in transparency between government and, and corporate interests. But by and large, there's a huge alliance here in collecting and using data. And way too often, each group uses the other's law to get around its own restrictions. I mean, fundamentally, the NSA surveillance, they didn't build this, right? They're piggybacking on existing corporate capabilities, right? They do it through cooperation, bribery, threats, compulsion. I mean, they got a lot of different ways in, but, you know, it's there because we use it, right? I mean, this is stuff we've built. I mean, surveillance is fundamentally the business model of the internet. And that surveillance is being commandeered, sometimes very drastically. And a point that you know, has sort of been made, and I want to make very clearly, metadata equals surveillance. And that's the way to think of it. And, and, and the easy analogy is, imagine you hired a private detective to eavesdrop on somebody. And what would he do? He would plant a, plant a bug in his office, in his car, in his home. He'd tap his phone. You'd get the conversation. If you hired that detective to put that person under surveillance, what would you get? You'd get where he went, who he spoke to, what he bought, what he looked at. That's all metadata. 
So when the president says, don't worry, it's all metadata, what he's saying is, don't worry, you're just all under surveillance constantly. Right? And we often talk about what each individual program, each individual uh, justification. It really is never just one thing. Right? It's not about Verizon metadata. It's Verizon metadata plus cell phone location surveillance, plus data mining techniques, plus internet monitoring. Or it's not just drones, it's drones plus face recognition, plus the database of tagged photos in Facebook, plus something else. Right? It's everything. And the surveillance state is very robust. You know, if, if the NSA has a choice between A or B, they tend to do both, because you never know when you might lose one of them. And this is very robust, both in capabilities and in justifications. And fixes here and fixes there will not fix. And this is not about the NSA. It's not just about the NSA. Matt made this point, and it's worth making again. Right? What we have here is a window into what the NSA is doing, but this is really an example of what any well-funded nation-state adversary will do. We do know China does some of these things. Right? And this capability flows downhill. Right? Today's secret NSA programs become tomorrow's PhD thesis, become the next day's high school science fair projects. Right? These, by, by looking at these general capabilities, we're protecting ourselves against the cyber criminals of a few years from now. Right? So our choice is not, you know, we, can we, how do we get the NSA to be able to do its job and protect ourselves from China? We either produce an internet that is vulnerable to all attackers or an internet that is secure from all users, right? That's our option. And what we've done in building all these capabilities is we've made surveillance too cheap. Right? You know, I, if the, if, the, if the revelations from these documents were the NSA is spying on the Taliban, it wouldn't be news. Right? What's news is the NSA is collecting bulk data in these various ways. Right? So instead of targeted surveillance, we've allowed this bulk surveillance. And what we need to do is make it expensive again. Right? The good news, bad news, I mean, and Snowden said this in, in his first interview in The Guardian, uh, encryption works Properly implemented strong crypto systems are one of the few things you can rely on. Right? That's the good news. The bad news was his next sentence. Unfortunately, endpoint security is so terrifically weak that the NSA can frequently find ways around it. Or I wrote, the math works, but the math has no agency. Right? The problems are everything after the math. I mean, all the implementations. And, and solutions, I think, are, are going to be multifaceted. I think there are going to be some internal corrections. The NSA, I mean, amazingly enough, doesn't do cost-benefit analyses on these programs. Near as we can tell, like the TSA, they never actually look at whether these make sense or not. And amazingly, they had no contingency plans for all of their secrets being leaked at the same time. It took them months. <laughs> it took them months to get a PR agency with enough clearance to, you know, to write those blog posts that we're seeing now. And I believe there is going to be Better, anal you know, better risk analysis inside the NSA where someone says, you know, this is going to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal in five years. Are we okay with that? And I think that'll happen naturally. I think we are seeing new corporate risk-benefit analysis. Right? The costs of cooperating have just become more expensive because we all collectively are getting pissed off. Right? And people are, are, are fleeing, especially losing overseas business. So I think there's going to be some natural collection.
I think there's a lot of limitations of intelligence, which I don't think are being looked at, which I hope will be. Uh, so that's internal. Externally, I think this is largely a political problem. And we sort of know in general how to deal with this. Transparency, oversight, accountability. You've heard that from a number of, of, of panelists. Unfortunately, that only affects the United States. And, and stepping back, what you kind of have here is a giant arms race. I mean, we do this because other governments, I'm going to use one for example, because China does this. Right? So we need our capabilities because they have their capabilities. So we're both stuck in this zero-sum game, and that fuels the arms race. I mean, I mean the way out of this is to, to realize, to push the notion that a secure internet is in everyone's interest, right? that we are all better off if nobody can do this kind of bulk eavesdropping than if everybody can. And once you make that shift, you turn this from a zero-sum game into a positive-sum game. You build in technologies to support this notion. You need technologies to deal with the non-compliant actors because you will always have you know, non-compliance. I mean, if the major governments decide that it's in our best interest to secure the internet, you're going to have those out there who don't like that. So you need tech to deal with that, and you need laws to deal with that. This is very general, but that's going to be the steps. And fundamentally, security is more important than surveillance, just like all infrastructure. And, and the sooner we get to there, I think the sooner a lot of these natural steps start flowing. Right? We're now living in a world, and, and Mueller's quotes were great to illustrate that. Right? We are so scared that we're willing to sacrifice the security of, the, of us to get a window into them. And that's where we went wrong, and that's where we have to fix. And I think until we fix that, that trade-off, that notion, we're just going to get point solutions that are not going to solve the problem. My, my biggest fear is that Congress does something that does nothing and then pats themselves on the back and goes home. On that uplifting note, uh, Sorry. we'll do a couple of... Uh, <laughs> I want to note, by the way, that the, the blog he mentioned is, uh, is called uh, IC, for Intelligence Community, on the record, uh, which also reads, uh, perhaps accidentally more aptly, as ICON the record. Um, <laughs> so uh, Bruce makes a great point, which is that we have an understanding of a couple of these individual programs. But if you've looked at, for example, uh, Siobhan Gorman's reporting, it's very clear that um, it's not really a, a series of, of these sort of totally independent silos. There's a feedback loop where the the metadata is used to target content collection. The content is mined for queries of the metadata databases. Um, it, is, it is a organic and very deeply interconnected system that um, you can't really fix one piece of at a time. And, and uh, so we are seeing a series of proposals that, for example, fix 215, but maybe don't prevent them from coming back in a week and saying, all right, well, now we'll use 214, the pen registered statute, or, you know, God help us. Uh, national security letters, which don't even require judicial oversight. Um, so actually, let me just ask, I guess, primarily Kevin and Michelle, um, are there particular legislative proposals on the table now to the extent that, you know, anyone whose tax status allows them to um, have an opinion on this um, that you are uh, optimistic about or believe represent a, a promising approach? Sure. Um, I, I think the Wyden bill from a couple of weeks ago is more complete. And I think the Sensenbrenner-Leahy bill 
that will be coming maybe this week or next will take the same approach, that it will go after a number of different Patriot Act authorities and some FISA Amendments Act. Um, I don't think it supposes to fix the overarching structure altogether, but to know to fix the known problems now, which I think is a good strategy to get what we can now, force disclosure so we can set ourselves up for long-term reform, and come back to this when there's a sunset. You know, our next sunset is in 2015 and another in 2017. So Congress will be forced to debate these authorities again in a couple of years. As to whether they have a good chance, I feel better now than we have in a really long time. Um, as a reminder, at the end of July, Rep. Amash offered an amendment on the floor, and it failed by only seven votes. And it was evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. This has become a bipartisan issue. Um, since then, we've had more leaks. We've had members come back from their August recess and say, I heard from my constituents and I regret my vote. So I think the next time this comes to the House floor, it's going to pass in some form. Um, once again, I'll echo what Michelle said. Uh, the Wyden bill addresses the bulk collection of metadata problem, not only from the 215 perspective, but also the pen register and NSL perspective, which we think is critical. We hope and expect, and we'll be thankful if and when uh, the Leahy Sensenbrenner bill does the same. We think that the political calculus on 215 and bulk collection is looking really good now. We are in the best position we've been in many years. Um, and uh, and uh, we're very hopeful on that, and hopefully that this will become uh, uh, the beginning of, of, of even more reforms, but, but right now I think the most gettable gains are on bulk collection of metadata and on transparency, and uh, especially on reform of the FISA court and its processes, including the introduction of some sort of special advocate for, as an adversary. Actually, it occurs me one thing uh, that we touched on in the last session uh, that hasn't really been discussed as centrally is the idea of uh, the architecture itself. Um, you know, the, the idea of, well, in the case of the phone companies, you know, the box actually being on the wire, which is less about legal authority and more about a, a design choice. And then also the design of secure communications platforms themselves. We thought the legislative solution there that we needed was just don't pass new legislation that would empower the FBI or other agencies to require redesign. But it looks like perhaps to some extent that's happening already. I wonder if anyone has thoughts on how to limit that threat. I mean, to me, that's, I mean, when I think about what the law should do is I want it to fill in spaces where the tech can't solve anything. So uh, something like prohibiting the government from forcing companies to make changes in their, in the way they do business. I mean, that would be something that tech can't solve and, and a law would make a lot of sense there. So I think there's, there's value in looking for those leverage points. So another example would be Right. Location data is required for you to have a cell phone. I mean, that they have to know where you are to give you phone calls. Can we somehow carve off that? Because I can't design tech to do that. So I think we're going to see the two together. And, and that sort of notion of, of forcing companies to divulge master keys, change the way they do business, like data retention, those sorts of things is something that, that would be an important thing for law to do. Oh. Uh, I'll add a few points that coincidentally will be similar to the points I would have made if I'd gone a few more minutes longer. Um, uh, I, I, I think this is, I think the revelations in the New York Times and, and through uh, Bruce's work and others about the NSA's work to weaken crypto and, and encrypted and hardened systems um, highlights the need for legislative action here. Um, 
we do have a law called Calia that requires telephone companies to make their systems wiretappable, although not necessarily to break or prevent end-to-end uh, -end encryption from happening. Um, but we do hear stories, both from the New York Times and now through the Lollabit case, of the government attempting to mandate the weakening of hardened systems, to break encrypted systems, to require a backdoor be built into them. Um, Rush Holt uh, has, in his uh, bill that would also um, repeal the entire Patriot Act and the FISA Amendments Act, but I'm not sure that bill is going to go anywhere, but it does have uh, a particular provision that also would say that the government cannot require a hardware or software manufacturer to build an insecurity into their system, um, which I think is a, a very good principle, uh, is a principle that CDT has long fought for in the context of attempts to expand Kalia to services online, uh, and in fact has a very long precedent reaching back into the days of the crypto wars when there was a bill that had the coolest name ever if you're a crypto nerd, which was the SAFE Act, the uh, Security and Freedom Through Encryption Act, which basically secured your right to possess and use and manufacture and distribute strong encryption and said that the government could not mandate um, key escrow or mandate backdoors. Uh, and amazingly, this had... Uh, the co-sponsorship of most of the House, including current uh, Judiciary Chair and ranking members uh, Goodlatte and Conyers. And so there were aspects of this bill that were not perfect, but I think it does go to show that there is room, especially in light of the latest revelations, and especially considering how critically important the security of our systems are, uh, the, security, the security of our systems is to our internet economy locally and globally. Uh, that there is room to move on this, that there is the potential, and I think the need for legislative reform in this area. So let me just take maybe one or two questions. We will move, I think, directly from the panel into uh, Representative Sensenbrenner's remarks. Um, but don't, so there will not be a leg stretching period in between, but um, there will be alcohol after to make up for it. Um, so, uh, Lou Randall. Uh, the microphone. Lou Randall, private citizen. I'm. <laughs> I'm wondering about um, these legislative reforms and their enforcement. How can we have accountability if nobody ever goes to jail? I will say, as a, as a side note on this, I have been in rooms with a bunch of advocates discussing um, various reform proposals. Uh, and it is very frustrating because you realize that people are thinking it's like trying to craft a, whiff, a wish um, that you will submit to an evil genie who will interpret it um, in the most malevolent possible ways. Saying, well, if we fix the language here, you know, and, and people are just sitting there going, well, how could they possibly twist that at the absolute outer extreme of the most sort of tortured legal logic to do something nefarious? Um, it, it, it makes it very frustrating, I think, to just engage in the, um, in the democratic process to some extent. But let me pass that to our panelists. Well, I, I think the only answer is to have the enforcement be public and allow the public to evaluate it itself, and therefore it can hold the court and Congress accountable if they don't do their jobs. Um, if that's one thing we've seen over the last um, decade is that, for example, the administration repeatedly misled the FISA court. You know, the court ex very explicitly says that. That's not my terminology. It's, it's theirs, right? And there was no consequence for it. There was no ethics investigation of those lawyers. No one was ever sanctioned. Um, so what's going to stop it from happening again, right? I think probably the best check on that is now that it's public. Um, and so moving forward, I really don't see using the intelligence committees or these secret oversight processes anymore or having any faith in them. And the only way is that we have, you know, public accountability. I agree. 
And we'll be, I mean, the, I think publicity here is, is key. At the last uh, hearing, I think it was the uh, Senate Judiciary, um, we saw a number of senators saying, well, you know, these reports came out about all these NSA analysts who were using this technology to read their, you know, searching for, or in fact, in some cases, actually reading the emails of their <coughs> spouses, significant others, uh, girlfriends. Um, that's a felony. Did any of these people go to jail? And they sort of said, well, there was some kind of internal discipline. They resigned. They didn't get um, dessert. Which is, which you don't usually get away with, like, getting to resign as your punishment for a fel felony. Um, but you do get a sense that n when it's not secret, um, it's a lot more awkward to have those things happen and there be no punishment. Uh, maybe one, one more question. Uh, right there. Hi, my, my name is Jean Athey, um, and this is perhaps more a comment than a question, which is that um, the, the whole uh, reason that we're here today is because of what Ed Snowden did. And um, I think that what we need to do is to, every time there's an opportunity, to say how, how um, happy we are, how great we think it was what he did, because he's risked his life and his future, and I think we need to push back against what, against what the administration is trying to do to him. And that would also apply to Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras. And so I would like to sort of end this question with, this, this is a panel on what can we do. And so I guess my question would be, what can we do to support Ed Snowden now? Um. Um, my organization doesn't have a particular position on, on supporting Snowden as an individual. Certainly we are having a national conversation that we would not be having but for his release of these documents and it highlights the need for greater transparency in this area. Uh, somewhat uh, self-interestedly and other interestedly, I do want to highlight that there is also a great deal of information that has come out this summer uh, due to the FOIA litigation of ACLU uh, and my former employer, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And the government continually releases these documents as if they were doing it out of the goodness of their heart, uh, rather than noting that it was under duress and being ordered by a court to do so. Um, and so uh, I think that one thing that we can do to foster more releases of this kind is to ensure that our FOIA laws are strong and enforced uh, well. Living thing. Yeah, um, with Snowden, a certain height, heightened the concern about the uh, 215 program, the metadata program. But should be pointed, the only time a program has actually been put brought down was through the efforts of Senator Wyden um, to demonstrate that it didn't work. And you can make that, if you can see, basically you're spending all this money on the program and it isn't improving safety. You solve the, the uh, Schneier problem of fear versus security. It's not giving us any security. In the case of the uh, wireless, uh, the, the um, uh, 215 program, the metadata program, there are quite a few people, as I understand it, and I've talked to a couple of them, in the government who think it's just a complete waste of money. It's not doing any good. If on top of that, because of the Snowden revelations, you have a large number of people saying, I'm really uncomfortable with this, and if it's not doing any good, I certainly don't want to risk my privacy over it. They might say, if it was catching all kinds of millions of terrorists all the time, I'd be willing to sacrifice that. But if you can demonstrate, as Wyden did with the other program, that it's not doing any good for your security, uh, you've got the huge cost, no value, and uh, in, in this atmosphere, I think a lot of people would say, let's scrap it. 
Then well, I want to uh, again thank our uh, excellent, excellent panelists, and we will not take a break. We will. Uh... <laughs>